The entire article will be like, we're trying really hard to find the crypto angle, and we haven't found it yet. The candidates have no statements. They don't know what a Bitcoin is. There's a crypto angle. We're still looking. And it's like, no, like, that was... People aren't taking you at your word. People aren't taking me at my word, and I understand that. Tuesday, November 15, 2022, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Institution Distinguished Policy Fellow, and I'll be your moderator today. Joined as usual by two of our Goodfellows, the economist John Cochran and the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows. We're shy of one Goodfellow this week. Neil Ferguson will not be joining us, but in his place, I think John and H.R. might even say it's an improvement on the show. We're joined by the one and only Kim Strauss. Kim is the Wall Street Journal's Potomac Watch columnist. She's also a regular panelist on the podcast bearing the same name. Uh, I listen to that show religiously. You should, too. It's 30 great minutes on what's going on in the nation and the world. What else do you need to know about Kim Strassel? She's an Alaskan. We can talk a little bit about that. Kim, welcome to Goodfellows. Oh, it is an honor to be here, although I could never live up to Neil's reputation. But it, it's like I said, it's cool to be a good fellow for an hour. Okay, we're going to have to cut that out of the show. That's the last thing Neil needs to, needs to hear. <laughs> And we're hoping, we're hoping, Kim, we're hoping, Kim, we could talk about Russia, too, because I don't know, you might be able to even see Russia. From you know what? I don't have that view, weirdly. <laughs> like, from where I am, I, I actually went up to the Bering Sea, up to Nome, and you couldn't even see it from there. I was waiting for that joke, and, and I thought it was going to be a half an hour. Exactly. Very good. So, Kim, I last saw you in Wyoming, of all places, and I remember the conversation drifting into uh, the fact that you own a pair of Oculus glasses, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I mentioned this because the last Goodfellows uh, we had as a guest, Tyler Cowan, the uh, esteemed economist, and my sense was that the panel uh, did not really care for the metaverse. Uh, virtual reality was not its cup of tea. So, Kim, I'm giving you one good minute here to sell John and HR on the virtues of virtual reality. Okay. First of all, have you guys actually even tried it? No. no. Oh, man. Come on. How can you miss it if you haven't tried it? So my youngest child has an Oculus VR, and it is the coolest thing ever. And I literally wait for her to go to school so that I can go use it when she's not around. Um, so I've, I've been I've been in lots of battle simulations in mock-up tanks and Bradley. So maybe I've been in synthetic environments uh, in training, but not not for fun. Yeah, except for that you would have to measure that right against the real deal. So, you know, it probably never lives up, right? Whereas some of the games I play on VR, you, I can promise you, I would never get the real deal. <laughs> Kim, let, let me ask you sort of where we went. Um, two questions. One, there seems to be a separation here. What is useful for business productivity and mm -hmm. what's useful as a gaming platform? And on the gaming platform end, we, we sort of went, there, there's an addictiveness to the, the thing on the cell phone, you right. never say, I'm going to go waste an hour and a half on Twitter. <laughs> you just pull it out. Whereas you really have to say, well, I'm going to waste an hour and a half sure. playing video games. So, um, you know, is something, is this, is a, a video game platform really going to take over the world? Uh, or is the case for this, you know, productivity software, the kinds of things that the internet has really done for us? Yeah, I actually totally agree with you on that. I, I can't actually imagine using that VR for anything useful other than playing games. I mean, the one other thing you can do is I think that there's some lifestyle aspects to it. Like they have some really quite interesting uh, exercise programs you can use now where you can put yourself in an indifferent environment while you're doing yoga or whatever it is, um, you know, train with someone else. Um, I think that there's some elements like that, but business, nah, I don't really see it. It's fun, 
Um, and, uh, and I mean, if you're a kid and you're going to sit around playing a regular video game, or you're going to put that on, it's just more fun to put that on. No, I can see some training like flight simulators, battle simulators, stuff like that right. is useful, but that's not a take on the world. And a lot of tech works on the it's okay principle. You know, Zoom is, it's not perfect, but it's okay. We do, we still do reply all email, terrible technology, but it's kind of simple and okay. So, uh, you know, I, well, let's at least say today they have, they have I, a- I, I have a bad vision of Goodfellas where John and HR are wearing Oculus glasses and doing yoga. I, I don't know if that's going to get clicks or not, guys. So it's what we got. We got to try. I can't. Yeah, I can't. I would, do, I my, would my fear, in to watch fear you guys is, do that. If I do yoga, I'm. I just fear that I'm going to be have to, have to be carried out in one of those positions. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to get stuck in it. <laughs> we do appreciate your coming on today because this is a busy day for you as the as a Potomac watcher in this regard. The House Republicans are meeting right now. Uh, last I checked, Kim, they have 217 seats. I think there are 14 seats still out there. So if they get one out of 14, if they can't get one out of 14, they need to give it up. But let's assume they get at least 218, 219, 220. You, you choose the number. Let's also assume Kevin McCarthy is the speaker next January in what form we don't know because what they're doing today, they're voting on how they're going to run committees, how they're going to do the rules committee, which decides what goes to the floor. You could have an empowered Kevin McCarthy, a somewhat emasculated Kevin McCarthy. You'll write uh, brilliantly about this, I imagine, in the next few days. But there's a question moving forward, Kim, about House, what House Republicans are going to do here. If McCarthy can keep their, his numbers in line, he can pass legislation. Anything that he hails as transformative is certainly dead on arrival with Chuck Schumer in the Democratic Senate. It's two-way traffic. Anything that Chuck Schumer and his fellow Democrats do is dead on arrival in the House. Kim, what is going to be done in Washington in the next two years other than just investigation after investigation? Well, uh nothing and some gridlock can actually be healthy by the way i'm actually welcoming a little bit of gridlock after the blowout spending that we have had uh in the last couple of years the most important thing that a mccarthy house can do is simply say no to any more super bad progressive ideas so i think everyone can rest easy we're not about to have six new entitlement programs for instance that cost six trillion dollars that's a that's a you know breathe a sigh of relief moment there I would warn everyone that that does not mean that there will not be spending. And in fact, I remain quite worried about this because if the Democrats have done anything particularly well the last two years, it's been inviting all, or all of the big spender Republicans to join them in lots of projects uh, like infrastructure spending or the CHIPS bill to send st stuff back to their state. So you're going to see a lot of efforts at that, and that might happen as well. I am worried about the investigations. Um, and I'd like to ask you guys a question about this too, but I just saw Newt Gingrich uh, talking about this and his advice was to Republicans to do a 90-10 split. Spend 90% of your time on stuff that really matters to Americans and in governing. Spend 10% on oversight, which is by the way, that's the thing I wanted to throw to you guys. I prefer that word because that's what Congress is meant to do is provide oversight of agencies and in the purpose that it informs their legislative intent. Uh, I worry, you guys can tell me what you think and what you see coming from this house, uh, that in the past four years in particular, Congress has instead been positioning itself more as a, a quasi-investigatory agency, something like federal law enforcement, which is just not meant to be. I think the purest expression of that was a January 6th committee, and it's kind of referral after referral to the Justice Department for some sort of uh, federal enforcement action or indictments. Um, and I, I would rather myself see the House get back to doing some of America's business. Yes, there's some questions to be answered, but if they do that full time, I think they're wasting an opportunity. What do you guys think? 
I, I agree with you entirely, and let me expand. Um, the Republicans, uh, you know, this was not the red wave, and I'm actually very optimistic. This was the best thing for them. They need to face uh, the fact that the American public doesn't think of them as ready to govern. There is actually a Republican program with a commitment to America. Nobody talked about it, you know, uh, nobody campaigned on it. Uh, getting rid of Trump and that whole business is important. Uh, so uh, they they didn't deserve to win because what is their alternative? It needs to be clear. Well, here's a chance. Bring Congress back to regular order. Pa yes, you could pass a bunch of bills. You know they're not going to get through now, but then a bunch of very well-crafted bills that we're campaigning on. 2024, give us the Senate, give us the president. Bing, bing, bing. You know what you're going to get. Uh, that would be useful. Um, there will be investigations. Right. Are we going to use, are we going to judicialize politics uh, and just start investigating and and uh, and um, and impeaching everyone. Or now there is a, a useful investigations. What the heck is going on with the administrative agencies? Right. Uh, that is a lot. Or a lot of the damage is happening. Um, spending. Yeah. Apparently, this president now can just pass an executive order and spend a trillion dollars if he feels like it. Well, uh, you know, Congress could can get back a little bit uh, on, on that question too. Now, are they going to do it? Uh, is this the time? Can they sit down and say, this is the time for us to show we are the responsible, regular order. We're ready to go. We're ready to govern. Give us a chance in 2024. Or is it going to be uh, uh, political noise? And that's a good question. I think the first test is going to come, like you said, on spending. And there's going to be the usual up against the debt limits, which we, we should talk about a little more, but I won't extend my comments right now. And then is, are we just going to blow out spending because we don't want the debt limit and so forth? Or are we going to take a principled approach? No. We are the House. The one thing we got is spending starts here and spending starts here. HR? Yeah, Kim, I have a question. Like, Don't you have some hope, though, for some of these committees that have been stood up by by uh, Leader McCarthy? Like, There's one on military readiness that I just joined, you know, so I hope it's worthwhile, uh, as, as, uh, as, as well as uh, uh, others are looking at really the strength of our economy. I, I mean, I think that the you know the war the war in Ukraine I think has revealed some big vulnerabilities. And you know, as we're as we're speaking, I don't know if you've heard this yet. Even uh, you know Russian missiles have landed in Polish territory. So uh, you know I, I think we are underinvested in defense. We have a bow wave of defense modernization that we have not really addressed. We have capacity issues in 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 our our forces, uh, and and of course you know we we need a capable military to deter conflict, you know, vis-a-vis -vis China, but but also to respond to, you know, this ongoing war uh, in, in Europe, as well as threats from, you know, the, the Islamic Republic of Iran, who's intensified its proxy war recently and is perfecting its its drone missile strike complex. And then, of course, Kim Jong-un lately is like, hey, what about me? You know, and he's, he's firing more missiles and saying that they're a rehearsal for a preemptive attack on, on, uh, on South Korea and, and Japan. So, I mean, I do think some important work needs to be done on defense. How about energy security? Another pipeline just blew up today uh, as, as well. Clearly, I think Russia, again, using uh, using that for, for coercive purposes and to affect the West will broadly. And then supply chain resilience. I know you I know you're not a fan of the CHIPS Act, but but I do think some element of you know economic statecraft is necessary now because of how vulnerable our supply chains would become to single points of failure, like ma mainly in, in China. So can there be some good work done? I mean, those three areas you would think, I mean, that, that those issues should be nonpartisan, right? Yeah, and I mean, Kim, what, yeah. Kim, Kim, what HR is getting at is that 
there are two kinds of investigations, I think. One is really kind of the politics of vindictiveness and vendettas, and the other one is trying to be forward. I mean, for example, you look at uh, doing an investigation of the FBI, and that'll get into the Russia hoax. But let's say there's an investigation into Anthony Fauci and the, and the public health apparatus. You'll have great fun bringing forward Fauci and embarrassing him with a thousand and one things that he said wrong. But really, I think, Kim, the more salient conversation is what happens the next time we face a terrible pandemic? What do we do different? What do we do better? And I think this is part of the message of last Tuesday as well, Kim, that those candidates who went out, Republican candidates, and really like Donald Trump kind of bathed in, you know, bitterness in the last, you know, four years, they got kicked to the curb. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And that is the soundest advice, which is, it, yeah, go and find out what's going on at the FBI. Okay, we've had a, a whole bunch of FBI agents that have come forward reportedly to the House as whistleblowers with some very big concerns about partisan operations happening at the highest levels of the FBI. What's happening at the border? Uh, you know, what do we need to get under, under control down there so that Congress can begin to have a serious discussion about some sort of immigration program going forward? There's all kinds of really important questions, but if you are going to instead, I mean, make it about the agencies, make it about the policy, don't make it about the individuals involved. You know, this is what Democrats did the last four years, whether they went after Bill Barr, whether after they were going after Don McGahn, you know, I mean, they, they just, I think Americans kind of sick of this. And by the way, HR, I hear this all the time. I can't agree with you more that uh, our lack of military readiness is so scary uh, and that we have got uh, what I am told by people who know far more about this than I do. And you would know far more, too, is that we, we need to not only do a, a major catch up, but we need to do it in like a five year period. Like it needs to be soon. And this is one thing that worries me about the spending question, which is one reason we are hurting at the moment is because of the way that sequester back in the Paul Ryan days was put in place um, and how much it hurt military funding. And Republicans are going to come in. They're already vowing that they don't, they want to sort of watch spending. That's fine. Great. But don't do it at the expense of military funding. And by the way, that by necessity means you are going to have to shut the taps on domestic spending if you want to be able to do both of those agendas. I mean, I don't know how much you worry about that, but. Yeah, I do. I do worry about it, especially now as inflation is going up and service on the debt goes up. And, you know, and of course, you know, uh, you know uh, non-discretionary spending is through the roof and the biggest you know, discretionary spending is military, but that's not the budget. That's not the, the debt problem is not. I'm domestic discretionary spending. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so I, I am concerned about it. And, you know, I actually, uh, Kim Hoover has a, re a really good program ongoing under the direction of the economist, uh, Michael Boskin on the defense budget process and, 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 and really trying to make this a matter of urgency for all Americans. I know, you know, eyes glaze over when you talk about like the budget process, <laughs> but you know, Hey, if you don't reform, I, geek out, I love it, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the lack of multi-year budgeting. And then also because of pressures on the budget every year, year after year, we pledge in the budget to buy the max allocation we can of ammunition, for example or of missiles and so forth. Then in budget execution, that gets brought down to the minimum every year. So estimates now, Kim, are if there, if there was a major war, maybe over Taiwan, right, with, uh, you know, with, with China or something, that our Pacific fleet could maybe expend all of its ammunition in 18 to 24 hours. You know, I, you know we should learn from Ukraine. Russia fired more munitions in the first couple of months of that war 
than all the munitions we fired in 20 years of war between Iraq and, and Afghanistan. So we have real capacity issues. And then companies, they don't want to open more production lines unless they have the security of a multi-year budget and some degree of predictability. So we really have to fix this budgeting and procurement system. And you're so right. I mean, this, you know, the the, the Budget Control Act and and the, you know, and the the the, the sequestration issues associated with that. That really, that really hurt us. And, and because we couldn't buy new stuff, we couldn't buy new, better weapons, it made us maintain older weapons longer at a higher cost. So there, there were a lot of really incentives to address within the budget-making process. And I mean, I hope, we, I hope that everyone recognizes, hey, we've got to take this on as a matter of urgency. Right, Kim, you mentioned Newt Gingrich a minute ago. So Newt came into office in 1995 as a speaker, having picked up 54 House seats, 230 seats in his caucus. He was on the cover of Time magazine, hailed as the most powerful man in Washington. He had a Republican Senate. He had a Democratic president more than willing to play ball because Bill Clinton was running for his life at that point. Kevin McCarthy is looking at maybe 219 seats. That's a net gain of seven. The word underachievement is on top of him. You talked to House Republicans. Kim, what sense do you have that they want to engage in what we might agree is adult behavior here. In other words, take the high road and not the low road on investigations. So I think that a lot of the new members that are coming in uh, definitely feel that way. And the reason is because if you were out there on the campaign trail at all, they were hearing the same thing I was hearing, which was that that's what voters want to see happen. Yeah, they do want some answers, some questions, but they fundamentally want Republicans to go and do the people's business of governing. Um, and so you're going to have new members. Look, I think the, you, the bigger arguments, I think, in my mind, you're always going to have a couple of folks out there in the raucous caucus who want to impeach, who want to, you know, constant. I think the bigger tensions are going to be policy tensions uh, that and that's going to be McCarthy's main issue that he has to deal with is that uh, not everybody wants to go impeach Joe Biden, but there is quite a big divide and a notable divide over how people view about how you should handle the debt limit. Um, you know, and whether or not uh, you should ever have any omnibus appropriations bills anymore. You know, the big fight over the next couple of weeks is going to be, uh, will McCarthy cede some of his speakership powers over to folks in the Freedom Caucus uh, in return for getting their vote to be speaker on January 3rd? Um, this could be what I hope to see. And I don't know, uh, John, you were talking about the legislative processes. I'm really hopeful that more than anything, uh, that we actually just see this old thing called regular order happen in the House. I mean, can you guys tell me the last time we actually had, uh, you know, a committee write a bill that was debated and marked up and sent to the floor and, and amended again and then went to a conference committee with the Senate and then went back and then went again. I mean, this doesn't even happen. Like people disappear into their leader's office and they write a 4,000 page bill and then they release it and then ask everybody to vote for it four hours later. And then everybody, and then one chamber sends it to the other who rubber stamps it and everybody leaves town. Um, I don't know, John, if you share that view, but. Yeah, ab absolutely. And this is, now this is the interesting political question and you're, you're our political expert today. We would love to see regular order. We would love to see, tone it down, bring back the norms and standards of democracy. Show us that you can govern. Just mind the damn store. Don't send us off on some new crusade. Mind the damn store correctly. But this country hasn't, uh, we haven't operated according to our own budget rules for decades. No serious country 
do, does things this way. Last minute, well, just continuing resolution, we're going to spend whatever we can. The debt, let me put in two bits on the debt limit. <clears throat> it is an immense fallacy that if the U.S. hits the debt limit, we must default on our debt. And one that I think is shockingly irresponsible for our treasury secretaries from both parties to pass on. When we hit the debt limit, it is perfectly possible for the government to say, no, we're going to honor our debts first, and we're going to cut social security payments if we have to, rather than bondholders. Uh. But if you want, you, it is budget possible. There is nothing in, in budget arithmetic that says that you have to threaten a default on U.S. debt. And as we're heading to inflation and people beginning to worry about U.S. debt, saying mm -hmm. that's sacrosanct would help. But yes, regular order, let's mind the store correctly. Let us follow a budget process so that, for example, the military can plan, oh yeah, we'll put in this new weapon system. And by the way, you'll buy us over five years, you'll buy us enough ammunition so we can actually use it and count on it and promise to our suppliers it's going to be there. Um, back to the agencies for a minute, you know, what I watch, now here's it's the other political question, does this going to resonate with the voters? So the right. CDC and the FDA completely blew it on the pandemic. Well, any normal country has an investigation, which can be bipartisan, says what went wrong? How can we learn next time to do this right? Uh, if it's a pandemic like this, or maybe if it's a worse pandemic, which may well happen, the agencies, <clears throat> I, I watch economic agencies, for example, this whole effort to to kill fossil fuels through financial regu regulation, that's going on. Well, that just needs exposure to sunlight and air and us peasants with pitchforks to figure out what's going on. But it's not clear, you know, can a congressperson get into these weeds, clean something like that up and hope, hope to win re-election? Mm -hmm. Kim? Oh, oh, yeah, I mean, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> of course I can. No, I mean, I mean, this is this, this is this is the anti lesson of this election, right? Which is if you're going to go out and you're going to look backward and you're going to kind of meditate on the last election and who didn't win and whether or not there were shenanigans. And then all you're going to do is complain about Joe Biden and the White House and inflation, and you're not going to go out and be able to tell anybody what you are plan to do and how that's going to positively affect their lives, then you're not going to win. By the way, we did have, like conservatives did have victories last Tuesday, some really important victories last Tuesday, and they just happened to all be done by people who did positively affect people's lives by governing in a very good fashion. You know, look at what happened down in Florida. Uh, with Ron DeSantis. And by the way, if, if people have not dwelled into those numbers, they are astonishing. It's not just that he won by 20 points. He basically won every demographic, okay? Older voters, independents, suburbanites, women, uh, Hispanics. He, he pretty much won every demographic other than African Americans and young people, okay, but, but increase a big increases with African Americans. It's huge increases, but here's the other one that just is amazing to me, and again, a contrast to what you saw in so many other places in the country. Ron DeSantis won 69 percent of the rural vote, 58 percent of the suburban vote. Okay, by the way, which is the place where Republicans basically lost elections the last couple of times around. And 55% of the urban vote. That's right. Also, Kim, you look at the voter registration numbers in Florida. So DeSantis's numbers are about the same as Gavin Newsom in terms of overall vote. Voter registration in California, Kim, two to one Democratic. Voter registration in Florida, 
I think Republicans have about a three-point edge last time I checked. So this is impressive. Kim, I'd like to switch to two topics where in theory there could be action in Congress and maybe even consensus. Let's start with the war in Ukraine. HR, I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, the news this week, Russia has abandoned the city of Kherson. Uh, Zelensky hails this as a quote, the beginning of the end of the war. HR, I want you to elaborate on that, true or false. But Kim, getting back to the Potomac watch, if you will, Joe Biden, before he uh, went abroad, said that after the midterm election, he'd like to hold a, a bipartisan meeting at the White House to discuss in his words, quote, how to advance the economic and national security priorities of the United States. So HR, first of all, is this the end of the war? And then secondly, if you were flying the wall or you're part of that conversation at the White House about what the security priorities are for the U.S., what would you what would you offer? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, th I think that this is the beginning of the end, as Zelensky said, but that it may take a couple of years, right, for to, right. to actually get to the end, even longer potentially, because as Russia showed after uh, Ukrainians retook Kherson after the evacuation of the Russians from Kherson. This, this volley of, of missiles that landed last night uh, in in uh, in Kiev, murdering more innocent civilians. Uh, right. Russia is determined, right, to to use these long range fires to try to affect Ukrainian will. Of course, I think the 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 effect is going to be the opposite of of that, and the war is going to go on. So, in terms of defense priorities, I think it's related to that first question of what happens in the Ukraine war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for the I mean, the, the first thing we should do is lift all these restrictions on the weapons that we're providing to the Ukrainians so they can fight to win. The statements that you've seen recently about, you know, we have to leave something on Putin's plate or maybe it's time to talk with Putin now, I think are delusional because Putin will not stop this war until he believes that he has been defeated. And, and it's, it's extremely important, I think, at this stage, especially as these missiles landed in Poland and so forth, you know, for for us to provide. The Ukrainians with the long-range fires capabilities, because again, in to defend their population, you have to kill the archer as well as be able to shoot down the arrows, expedite the intermediate-range air defense capabilities, uh, and then of course um, provide long-range surveillance as a system uh, approach to this problem set of the long-range fires, the drones that are coming from the Iranians, the missiles that are probably soon to come from the Iranians uh, a, a, as well. Uh, and then offensive capabilities. And this is why I think this talk of maybe haven't they achieved enough? You know, it's getting cold there now. Maybe the offensive should stop. Actually, that's the best time to attack <laughs> when the ground is is frozen. And the Russians, by the way, many of whom don't even have winter coats, right? I mean, this is the perfect time to continue the offensive. So provide the Ukrainians with the protected mobility and the mobile protected firepower that they need. Because I think they've shown they have the valor, they have the will. And, uh, and I think this is important to our own security. We have to explain this to the American people. When people got upset and worried about you know, Putin rattling his nuclear saber, guess what? He wouldn't have been doing that if this war didn't begin at all, right? Or if there wasn't a renewed offensive in February 24th. How could that have been prevented? By providing the Ukrainians with defensive capabilities that would have convinced Putin that he can't accomplish his objectives through the use of force. So, hey, I, I think Ukraine's security is related to ours, Bill. I think if you know, if we if our will breaks, what is Xi Jinping going to say? Hey, he's going to say, Vladimir, we were right. The West really is weak. You know, it really is this new era of international relations with us in charge. Uh, well, I'm discouraged to hear us talking already. Oh, we need to negotiate. We need to negotiate. And I, and I had this from last week, too. We're forgetting this isn't the war about the Ukrainians. This is a war about us. This is a war about the West. You, you fight now or you're fighting in Poland, which which we might be. And then it it really rankles me about, well, he can have Crimea. Let's talk about the 19, uh, about the 2014 things. 
This is uh, in 1994, the U.S. said, give up your nuclear weapons. We guarantee your territorial integrity. Now, was that just the first of many lines in the sand by which we slowly give up and negotiate? Or do we actually mean something? Uh, and so you can't just say, well, you know, you get to pick and choose this part and that part, and you can have some of it. It keeps you happy. No. And this is not a war for Ukraine. This is a war for us. And we need to take that seriously. Now, Ukraine, I, I worry about them because they're so dependent on us. And we're already starting to talk about this stuff. Uh, their economy is in trouble. So <clears throat> I guess questions, um, if I were Ukraine, I would be wanting to start building up that economy uh, as much as possible. And they, they're sort of set to be a new Israel, a new uh, high-tech defense uh, and and a new maybe a new uh, a new Ireland uh, the the low tax uh, entrepreneurial spot of Europe can they start that going could they start investing I'm I'm very surprised they're not borrowing more money they're they're dependent on us for for gifts but you know invest in the new Ukraine uh, that that's how governments usually fight wars they borrow that that would seem like a fairly uh, good way of selling bonds in the West and and I if I were them would be looking at these high, I would not want my whole defense to depend on high Mars from the US. And you know, if Turkey can make drones, the Ukrainians can make drones. And and I'm I, if I were them, I would be stealing intellectual property, if I can use this uh, uh this thing we talk about on the show, I'd be dismantling those high Mars, figuring out how to build them as fast no, as hey, can, can I interject quickly here on and then and then, yeah, and, then maybe, and then maybe ask him to comment on this with with a follow-up question. They are do they are doing that. Uh, the Ukrainians are, and you, you've seen some of these drones. I mean, they, they've used, you know, they used like, uh, you know, um, you know, engines from, you know, from skidoos and stuff with, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, you know, to, to create these, these, uh, these ocean-based drones that attacked, uh, the Russian fleet in Sebastopol, you know, so they, they are, they are making their own drones as well. I mean, uh, I mean, at a, at a, at a large scale, um, and they're innovating in, in, in other ways that that uh, may not even want to talk about publicly. Yeah. So, but I think they're, you know, but but they're they're doing that. But you're right, and and this is and Kim, you know, uh, Neil, because he's he's not here, I'll just refer to his Bloomberg piece a few a few weeks ago, where he made the point that John's making is we do need to take a long term approach to this war from a financial and economic perspective because right. it is a long term war. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, and then also, what is your read of the election again in terms of has this neo-isolationist sentiment that you see present in some parts of the Republican Party? Do you see that gaining strength, losing strength? Do you think the consensus to support Ukraine, do you think that's going to hold in the new Congress? So first of all, I, I agree with you. We need to take a long-term approach because I think that our failure to have done so has been our mistake so far in this, in this endeavor. And I'm speaking primarily of, of Joe Biden here. You know, for all he goes out and says that he's rallied the world and, and kept a coalition together, my read is that he's been very reluctant to, to lead on this. Uh, it's not an issue he wanted. He'd far more be rather be focused on something else. Um, and, and if you look and you've covered this from a congressional perspective, Congress on both sides of the aisle have been pushing and pushing and pushing the White House since February to provide more equipment to the Ukrainians for the long term, right? 
And the argument from the administration is, well, they don't know how to run it and it'll take too long to train them. Well, if we'd have got some of them up and running on some of this equipment back in February, they would be operating it at this point. You know, the, the notion that it it was all going to get done in a month. And, and, and so I think the sooner that we all adopt that mentality, that this is going to be a sort of long run thing that we need to do, the better we're going to be able to help Ukraine get there. I I am still pretty confident about Republicans in, in the House and in the Senate in terms of holding their support for this. Um, yes, there are some very prominent voices that have kind of joined, I guess you'd, you'd call it populism or uh, sometimes the America first crowd. Uh, I wouldn't call it sort of true isolationism because I have to be honest with you, I think it's a little bit more craven than that. Um, <laughs> people who are sort of true isolationist often have a, a, a better rationale than some of the folks that I've seen out there making some of these arguments for why we shouldn't engage or only engage in certain places. We're going to get a couple more people like that in the House and the Senate, prominently J.D. Vance from Ohio. Um, and he's going to, but the, I think the good news is that he joins a, 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 a pretty limited caucus and most people have re remained very responsible. Even I would note some senators that, that they kind of dabble in that um, uh, populism in other areas. And an example I would give would be like Marco Rubio, for instance, you know, I mean, when it comes to sort of the childcare tax credit, he, he's not where I am in terms of conservative principle, but uh, he's been good on some of these issues internationally, so I, I'm hopeful that those voices prevail. I don't know. What do you guys think? But let me let me give them. A, there's a point to the isolationists, which is for the last 20, 30 years, pretty much everything we did internationally has been a disaster. <laughs> uh, and so they kind of say, well, how do you know? You know, and every each time you said, yeah, yeah, those were disasters, but this time, you know, send in the Marines, it'll turn out right. And you know, say they have a reason for skepticism. Most recently, Afghanistan. <laughs> Which is, and it's remarkable how little political cost one year ago, an absolute bloody disaster. You know, you were, we spent a trillion dollars in Afghanistan and we're worried about 20, 30 billion in, uh, in uh, Ukraine. It's a, it's a, but where was the political cost for losing Afghanistan? And I worry they might say, well, therefore, you know, let the Russians invade. Who cares? Where's the political cost for, uh, for losing Ukraine and, and there and taking one step back on losing the whole West? Well, the political cost might come in 2024 when Biden's on the ballot. But HR, I want to push back on this question. If you're invited to this big bipartisan meeting at the White House where the president gets a nice photo op looking responsible, kumbaya moment, what are the security priorities of the United States? In other words, what do you want resolved in that meeting? Well, I, I think there are three There are three big ones, right? And I, I mentioned defense already. To address the bow wave of defense modernization, to strengthen our military capacity, to ensure that we have forward-positioned capable joint forces that are capable of operating at sufficient scale and for ample duration to convince potential enemies they can't accomplish their objectives through the use of force. And, and obviously to do so uh, as part of alliances and bilateral security arrangements and, and, and so forth. The second big area, I would say, would be in the area of energy security. We see that with the, the recent destruction of another pipeline. Uh, and then what I, would, what I would emphasize is the need to integrate energy security with national security and efforts to reduce man-made carbon emissions. Because what we're doing now makes no sense, right? I mean, we canceled a Canadian pipeline, but we greenlighted a Russian one. Then we 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 then we impeded, as John already alluded to, uh, any kind of any kind of investments in our own energy infrastructure where we could be part of the solution to the global energy problem set. Um, and then we begged the, the Venezuelans and the Iranians, you know, to export more gas and oil. How does that make any sense? You know, we 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 say that we want to 
reduce carbon emissions. But guess what everybody's doing now because of, of the idiocy of our policies in large measure is they're burning more coal, right? And emitting more. I mean, so so how about how about just doing what makes sense and investing in our own energy infrastructure as well as next generation capabilities like EM squared nu nuclear reactors and uh, and and uh, as well as renewables and so forth. The third big area is on supply chain resilience, you know, and I think we can all say, and I mean, we can shed a tear for it, John, if you want, but I mean, <laughs> hey, unchecked globalization's over, brother, it's over. And so and so all the assumptions on which these these very fragile but efficient supply chains are based are are are, are gone. And so so I, I think supply chain resilience overall in key areas, you know, like battery manufacturing, for example, magnets, upstream components, uh, for the equipment and hardware essential to the energy transition, uh, including minerals and so forth. And of course, a big part of that is going to be permitting and deregulation. So these are all things that the that President Biden and the people around him would not want to hear, you know. <laughs> but but I think that those are the sensible areas of national security that we have to really work on as a priority. But I don't see maybe Kim, you see some progress in these areas, but I don't see I see halting progress at best. No, we had a, an administration which almost pretty much on day one moved to reverse the reforms that the Trump administration had made on the National Environmental Policy Act, which was designed to speed up those permits um, and, and let business get out there and actually deal with some of those problems you just pointed out. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, the supply chain aspect because we talk a lot here about uh, energy resources, but just as important are mineral resource. I mean, this country is also just abundant uh, in, in mining resources, but it has been, along with energy, uh, shut down by environmental activists and targeted equally by this administration as fossil fuels have been. And, and we're going to have to completely rethink that. Well, I, I got to put in my two words for free economics here, because okay. nothing like a military guy who to bring. bring I know, man. You guys are going to. You guys are going to rescind my college credit in economics. No, 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 no. You just that's actually. <laughs> you no, can have free markets and and mining in this country as well. Oh, actually, too. no. So here, yeah. there's a lot of steps where we just need to get the heck out of the way. <laughs> and yes. so Energy and mining, just get out of the way. Stop shooting yourself in the foot. Is is lovely. now. When, when you start telling me you want to run the global economic quest for global economic supremacy and uh, make sure our supply chain for dog squeaky toys doesn't rely on too many Chinese people, uh, then then I get, you know, uh, if it's really I'm not saying security, that, John, I'm not saying that. I mean, I think budget. dog toys are OK. Dog toys are okay. <laughs> Well, 99% of what we import <laughs> from China is on the level of dog put toys. So, you know, if you if you really want to do that, identify what is militarily important and put it on the defense budget, and then I'll be a lot happier. Uh, but otherwise, you're 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 going down a long, uh, a big trap. And let me remind you, China with China, we are still at the point of deterrence, not war fighting. Mm -hmm. Our job with China is to convince them not to invade Taiwan. Uh, the kind of deterrence that's so, by the way, that was the hugest failure in, in Ukraine. We were supposed to be deterring Putin from invading. And, and uh, you know, for example, Afghanistan lost that deterrence. We want China to see that invading Taiwan will hurt it, not just because we're going to shoot back hard, but because it's going to cost it a lot. And so going, trying to cut it, fighting the war now by trying to cut it off completely from the global economy is a mistake if your effort is to deter them from starting that war. Can I also just, not to pile on the general, but 
My, I, like, I need help. My, my yeah, Neil's not here, Kim, please. That's typically what. The, the supply chain thing, too, also becomes an excuse for all kinds of very bad policy. So I know you were maybe giving a half-hearted defense of the CHIPS Act. But, you know, that was the hook that Congress used to end up passing about $500 billion worth of terrible pork. And a whole, and by the way, the vast majority of that money ended up going to government agencies, you know, like for new studies on manufacturing and joint projects with American industry. Uh, but that's how it was sold to everybody. It's, oh, we really need to do something to make sure we strengthen our supply chains. And, um, you know, and I think that was probably like 30 cents worth of the bill. And then the rest of it was <laughs> horrible. Industrial, straight up. Well, and, and this, well, this, I mean, this this reinforces your point of regular order, because, you know, that bill started as mm. the America Competes Act uh, in the Senate under Senator Risch. And you know, our team here, we helped support their staff in drafting it. It was a very sensible act. Right. It goes over to the House. It gets all this pork, you know, shoveled into it. And where it, where, where it died, it died because of that. You know, there's too much pork for anybody to take it seriously. So that was whittled down a little bit. But, you know, it, it's an example of a missed opportunity, I think. You know, it addressed the problem of, of really unacceptable risk associated with the semiconductor supply chain. I think we would all recognize it. If, if China were to blockade Taiwan or invade Taiwan today, we, the result would be a major global depression. Right, because of the way that that supply chain has become almost wholly you know, reliant on TSM and TSMC chips manufactured in Taiwan. So so there was there was an element of, of it that I think was important. But I agree with you that, that there's a lot of pork in that bill. The other thing I would say is that to, to John's point, I agree. Not, we're not fighting the war with China now. What we I think what we would hope is that a Chinese leader, because I don't think Xi Jinping is ever going to realize this, realizes that that China can have enough of the China dream, enough of the vision of national rejuvenation without pursuing that vision at our expense, without trying to rewrite the rules uh, of, of international engagement and, and the international order from, uh, from an economic, a financial, and a security uh, perspective, or redefining what you know human rights is and so forth, this massive agenda that they have. So, I mean, I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't want you guys to, you know, to, to think or our viewers to think, you know, that that that's, you know, not the objective, I think, with competing with China. So, Kim, um, Kim, I, Kim I have breaking news for you. Sorry, HR. Uh, Kevin McCarthy survived his speaker vote within the caucus. Uh, the Wall Street Journal's reporting. So it's not fake news. Uh, the vote was 188 to 31, if you're curious. Uh, I'd like what to was it again? Sorry. One, 188 to 31. Uh, I'd like to shift now into crypto, Wait, John. Can I, I ask it? Okay, quickly, quickly. Okay, quick. Well, I don't know if you'll decide whether it needs to be good. We've talked too much about the Republicans. What will the Democrats uh, do now? Oh. Um, we, you know, they 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 don't they may not have Joe Manchin to save them anymore in the Senate. They have executive orders. They have uh, the capacity to confirm a lot of judges. As we we to talk about how the Republicans need to show that they're capable of governing and and sort of exercise the 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 Trump demon. Uh, Democrats are are they going to find competence, leadership, regular order, save themselves from their extreme progressive tendencies? Is this no? That's a short answer. <laughs> well, Bill wanted a short answer. Well, it is a short answer, but let me, let me segue this into our next topic, Kim. What are Democrats going to do on cryptocurrency? Because right now there is the spectacle. Someone's going to be very popular in your newspaper, Sam 
had been freed and the tragedy that is FTX. Uh, question, Kim, is he going to become to cryptocurrency what Elizabeth Holmes was to uh, medical testing? But secondly, it's a question for you, John, as well. How is Congress going to investigate cryptocurrency? The phrase you hear around D.C. right now is we need to put, quote unquote, guardrails on it. But Kim, what is the fine line between guardrails and overregulation? And John, where do you think both Democrats and Republicans should pursue it? I mentioned this because Mr. You know, because uh, SBF has given a lot of money to Democrats. So I'm curious how the Senate handles him. Well, let's just say th this story has got a lot of legs and it's got a long way to go. Uh, it, people are going to be unraveling it for a very long time. I would just point out, though, that in some ways, uh, what actually happened was sort of your, your your classic financial panic and run on a company, uh, as it were. Um, and so I don't think as long as it doesn't look as though there's any contagion heading over into the banking sector, I don't think that we need to kind of freak out about it too much in terms of what happened. I do think that there's going to be some really interesting details about this guy and the fascinating way in which he had structured all of these companies and what exactly was going on there. But but I don't think that this is necessarily something that from a like a, a more macro or or perspective we have to be too concerned about. Now, that being said, I do think Democrats are going to use this as an excuse to do what uh, uh, we've been doing up to now, which I think is the wrong approach. Uh, you saw Elizabeth Warren, she's always a very good kind of tip in, in what the direction is headed, uh, saying that this was a call for the SEC's Gary Gensler to crack down even more in enforcement activity. And this is what Democrats have wanted to do, is just governed by enforcement, as it were, have the SEC go after this company or that company and, and you know, crack down on them. The problem is that there's no clear set of rules, you know, and that was one of the questions I had. She's like, we need to have the SEC go after these guys for breaking the rules. I was like, what rules? This is the problem. So we were just talking about Washington governance. Um, I, I think that there needs to be a very potentially a very basic set of clear rules that explain a few things, mostly in terms of transparency. You know, I mean, this is one of the problems with FTX is you didn't really know what was going on because, you know, this was a very opaque outfit to a degree that many other financial institutions would not get away with, right? So I think you need a few rules of the road in that regard, but ones that are written by Congress uh, and not Gary Gensler, you know, off in his SEC tower setting kind of ad hoc rules for the cryptocurrency market as we go along. So let me let me offer two a couple of thoughts. Yes, this is going to be a cause of some very embarrassing photographs of prominent, uh, mostly Democrats, being taken, <laughs> and I, I'm sure they're trying to get rid of those. But uh, to the point of of what happened and regulation, let's remember this was not crypto. This was an exchange in the Bahamas, and the reason it was in the Bahamas was precisely to avoid U.S. regulation. So the it's not clear you need to strengthen U.S. regulation when the whole thing blew up in the Bahamas because U.S. regulation already prohibits this sort of thing. Second, I, I, this wasn't really a run. This was classic fraud. Uh, what, the, what happened basically was just the classic use of customer money. An exchange, if it's really an exchange, cannot go bankrupt because you go there, you buy your crypto, and it's your crypto. And, and it's done. It's just like you go to Whole Foods and you buy your kale and arugula. It's your kale and arugula. Uh, 
<laughs> Sorry, I live in Palo Alto. Uh, so yeah, what as happened? As you didn't use crudite like it, it, the, the yes. failed Senate <laughs> candidate in Pennsylvania. And there's a veggie tray, people. So it was closer to a broker dealer right. in that they could they they were using your stuff. It wasn't yours. They were using yours as collateral to lend another stuff, and it was actually just a fraud. Uh, they used your investment, and they used that to finance all sorts of other stuff, and, and it wasn't there. So this is nothing. It, most of crypto is interesting technology, but very old-fashioned finance. And for 400 years, people take your money and then fraudulently use it for something else has been uh, a source of explosions. Uh, I would also add, uh, in a sense, it's it's not about crypto and it is about crypto. So this is just classic fraud, using customer money when you're not supposed to be using customer money. Uh, the fact that it was crypto, in fact, but it does show two big uh, two big problems with crypto. The whole point of crypto was you're not supposed to need exchanges. Why are you going to an exchange to buy crypto? The whole point was it's just on your wallet. It's peer to peer. We don't need any of this stuff. Well, apparently not. <laughs> uh, so you you know it was it was all the classic stuff that you do wrong on on and exchanges and leverage and using customer money went on. But it went on because crypto wasn't working for what crypto was supposed to work for. And it is also true that the underlying asset <clears throat> you can do this with mortgages. You can do this with tulip bulbs. The underlying asset in all these cases were tokens that were had no fundamental value. And fiat money that is completely unbacked eventually goes to its natural and has substitutes goes to its natural value of zero. So that it was built on an asset that had no fundamental value didn't help whatsoever. Now, crypto can still exist. Uh, backed tokens are still an interesting technology. They turn out not to be as great and liquid as we thought. So you're buying them through exchanges. So it does not really have that much to do for, with crypto. It's just classic financial fraud. HR, maybe the lesson here is also don't take financial advice from celebrities. It was just a few months ago that Matt Damon was on Super Bowl commercials telling us that fortune favors the brave. I, I wonder if he got yeah. paid in crypto, by the way, for doing that. <laughs> and certainly don't don't listen to any economic advice from washed up generals. So, I mean, of course, I defer <laughs> well, to John and all this stuff. But, it, but it, yeah, in so you, you guys, you guys just sold a lot of insurance reasons. on Fox News, but <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> if they're registered in the Bahamas, there's a reason they're registered in the Bahamas. So caveat so emptor Neither of you are into crypto. Not crypto investors here. Okay. This is where we need Neil. Neil Neil's been the biggest champion of crypto. Well, ever. we should be, you know, to be honest, I'm I used to be a finance professor and I should be massively short <laughs> given my <laughs> written comments on it. And I'm and I'm not, but that's just because I'm lazy. Okay. Can, can we have about 10 minutes left in the show? I want to squeeze in one more segment here. Uh something hits home to the three of us here in Palo Alto because it's about an hour to north of us. And that's the fun and games at Twitter. And I imagine every day you take great delight reading this as I do, because my goodness, there there is more snowflake content here than there is in the Sierra snowpack right now. Uh, we have the delight of, uh, of Elon Musk trolling AOC and Hillary Clinton. Uh, just he must delight in just always getting in these fights with these just incredibly joyless people with no sense of humor. And then you look inside Twitter and there are people that just absolutely ripped up Kim because their free lunches are being taken away. You probably saw the story about the Twitter uh, employee who was so worked that whipped out of shape that she threw up in a garbage can. They're crying at their Halloween party. So there's a lot of fun and games going on here. And it just really does confirm a lot of the silliness of the tech sector. But the question, Kim, is really... What is Musk doing here? And what outside of just having the delight of trolling people, what is Twitter's future? I see stories about video games. I see stories about him wanting to create a super app, but he's got $44 billion at stake here. What do you think he wants to achieve? 
Look, I think that there's what Musk is trying to do, which I really admire, by the way. The overall idea of what Musk is trying to do is something that is very important that we should support, which is that he is attempting to use the free market or rather himself as an entrepreneur to, to, to reroute and change a direction of a, a product that he feels, uh, believes is immensely important to speech in the country and as a public forum. And I really hope he succeeds because we need more of this rather than a default every time to regulators in Washington need to take care of this thing that big tech did or that thing that big tech did. You know, how awesome that like we have a billionaire who's like, I'm going to fix Twitter. I, I really hope he manages to do it. Now, doing that is much harder. You know, Twitter is was really underperforming, is really underperforming. It needs to add a lot of users. It needs to rethink its, needs to rethink its business model uh, and the way it does it. But you know what? If there's a guy that's got some pretty interesting, innovative ideas on stuff, he's got a pretty good track record, right? Like he's in space. He's drilling underground. I mean, he doesn't have a little brain. So, you know, I think it's going to take him some time to maybe clear out some of the the hysterical weepers at the country and the company and sort of get in some new you know minds and thoughts maybe they move to another state that'd be cool too um and but but i think he's got as much of an opportunity to do something useful with this company as anyone else what about you guys by the way does everyone now get up and now go and read elon musk every day on twitter because i did well, the, first, the first question i have to the group is what are you gonna do about your blue checks I do have a blue, channel, I do I have a blue check because there were there were I think scores of people pretending to be me, so they they helped me get a blue check. But you know, you know, I I do I do think that that this is positive, Kim. I mean, in terms of you know somebody who wants to fix it, and I hope that he brings in people like Tristan Harris. I don't know if you know his work at the Center uh, for Responsible Technology, uh, because I, I think that these 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 social social media is doing something to us that is to some degree unprecedented in terms of you know the the drive toward polarization you know the just the whole idea of monetizing more clicks to get more advertising dollars and doing that by these algorithms which are you know, which we don't really understand that show people more and more extreme and often false content right so i i i'm concerned about our confidence in our common identity as americans and and our confidence in our democratic processes and institutions so I'm, I'm glad to see it i hope he can pull it off i don't really know what he plans to do i'm not an expert on any of this uh, but I'll be watching it closely and and you know reading about it as much as I can and and I hope that other voices like Tristan Harris's you know have a big impact on on what his approach is. Can I just throw one last yeah, thing? I mean, one of the things I actually think is really interesting is he's floated the idea of maybe people can kind of use filters or things to sign up for different experiences on Twitter, and I just think that matters because I think that. Maybe you sign up for the experience where you're not getting all the flame speech and the hate speech and that, you know, which is what makes Twitter so toxic. And, you know, because unfortunately, there's just too many people who have too much time to troll everybody else online. And that's what makes it su such a miserable place. I, I hate getting on it right now. I kind of have to for work, but it's not pleasant. John? So I, I, I want to channel HR about being the optimist about this one, too. <laughs> Um, so the Twitter, the free speech aspect, I think, is incredibly important. Uh, that that um, and Twitter as a as a sort of a global single place where you can learn stuff. 
uh, I've learned, and all of us have learned stuff about Ukraine, stuff about uh, energy, uh, stuff about COVID policy that came up, that came up, her heresies were allowed to come up on Twitter, and we all learn from them from all sorts of different fields. If we all go to Mastodon and live in our little bubbles, we're, ne we're never going to get that, that global town square. Uh, but I'm uh, the content moderation was barred. The, the, the news that Twitter was coordinating and Facebook were coordinating with the White House on what kinds of views needed to be banned. You know that that really that that's China stuff. Um, and, and I agree. I, I can listen to all sorts of stuff. I let the user figure out what they want. Now, how does this end up? I, I, I see. I'm optimistic uh, as you are, but in a couple different ways. It could end up being the great WhatsApp, the great, the, the payments uh, uh, vision that he had. Not crypto, by the way, <laughs> but seamless, uh, seamless integrated payments. Uh, you know, maybe he can make that work in a way that it's never worked. The other possibility, though, is that rather than billions of users and becoming the single great app, it goes through chapter 11. We wait, mm -hmm. 44 billion bucks goes down the drain. But then you don't have to have huge ad revenues to support the massive amount of, of debt. You could have a, a simple app that is just the Twitter uh, that, uh, you know, you pay eight bucks to use and there isn't a ton of ads and that is focused on just being the town square and isn't trying to be the next great tech app of, app of everything. So that's optimistic. And the third piece of optimism is it proves once again uh, the great, um, I don't like to use the word lie, but the great, uh, the fallacy of, oh, the big internet monopolies that need the government to come and tear them apart. Let's see. Facebook, how you doing these days? <laughs> we were joking before the, the, the show about how Yahoo, Netscape, and AOL have it all wrapped up. Well, uh, uh, the free market can take apart monopolies remarkably quickly. Uh, and and th so this remains uh, a very contested space, which so, is all great too. So Kim, a question for you. I, when in doubt, I always go back to the Simpsons. The Simpsons just seem to be eerily predictive and just have their finger on the pulse. There's actually a very clever uh, column right after the election, which is a side-by-side -side of quotes by Elon Musk and Montgomery Burns. You figure who said what. But I remember an episode years and years ago where the incredibly shady lawyer Lyle Hutz uh, is, uh, is is going over Casey and he goes, can you imagine a world without lawyers? And then they cut to a scene where people are dancing around, holding hands in a field of wildflowers, like the old Coca-Cola commercial. Here's the question. What if Elon Musk just pulled the plug on Twitter tomorrow and killed it? What would the world look like? <laughs> well, he, even he would be a much poorer man. A lot of people would be a lot poorer. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I agree with John. Uh, um, I think that there's an... an has been an underrated but immense value of all these voices being together and then playing off each other as well too to find out information. I mean, I was studying as someone who had to, for my sins, uh, write a lot over the last few years about the whole Russia collusion hoax. Um, as brilliantly you know, done, may I say? Mm -hmm. Thank you. As Special Counsel Durham, John Durham, was doing this, and he would put out these. Um, indictments or, or, you know, the speaking sort of indictments and in all of the court documents and people would be referred to as uh, person B and business person C. It took Twitter about 20 minutes to unravel who everybody was in all of those documents, an immense amount of information and sleuthing, you know, the kind of it's sort of an extraordinary thing to see, like a joint brain, right? Someone saying, well, what about this? And what about this? And it was it was extraordinary. Yeah, I've seen that happen a number of times. So I think there's a real value to it in that way. So in that regard, I think it would probably be bad if it was gone. Um, but I do think we have to, I agree with HR. I think we have to, look, I have three kids. 
we need to rethink how technology and social media and VR and all of it plays into our lives. Like we have a rule in my house. I'm like, if I see you texting to one another while you're in the same room, I will take that device away and you will never see it again. I'll just run over it with the backhoe. Like you won't ever have it, you know? So, um, uh, but but we have to kind of, this is like something that my parents didn't have to worry about. They had different worries, but, you know, we need to teach subsequent generations about the limits and appropriate uses of social media to stop some of the toxicity of today. You know, and we're focusing on Twitter, but we ought to talk at some point too. I just recognize that there are other platforms out there. There are problems. I mean, I think TikTok, for example, and the way that you know, it can almost like reprogram people's brains, you yeah. know, in terms yeah. of, and not, and again, an algorithm that's not understood, uh, information that's being gathered as well as another issue uh, in, in terms of, you know, people actually becoming the product themselves. So uh, should it, should it be, should it be banned? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I've got to think more about it, read more about it, understand it better, but I, nope. I, I, I don't so know. Nope. We have a rule, no passive voice on this program. It be banned by who? <laughs> by our government? Oh, I'm not so sure I want our government in charge of what gets banned. Uh, okay. So I like the idea of set up your own filters. I like, the, if I'm going to have one regulation, it might be you have to use your true identity and be verified who you are, at least in, in a marketplace. That there's the, the your sacred honor, your reputation is is one useful thing to keep people from, from spewing other stuff. But otherwise, say what you want. And if you don't like it, toughen up or set some filters so you don't have to listen to it. But we don't silence anyone. Okay, I'm going to go past it one last time, but also it be the last few minutes of the show. So let's go around the horn very quickly. Based on what happened last week, John Cochran, do you feel better or worse about American democracy? And I think you feel better. I feel better. Yes. And, um, you know, now now's the chances, at, at, at least for the Republicans, you got to face it, guys. Uh, are you going to get serious and, and deserve it, which you in, in the DeSantis mold, you evidently have the possibility to do? Or are you going to go down in flames for another generation? HR, you always find a way to feel better. Hey, I feel better. You know, I mean, how can you not feel better, right? We have a say in how we're governed, right? And 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 I think that what's happened in recent years is is this lack of confidence in our democratic processes. And I think what you see is it may be the first steps toward you know, toward regaining confidence. And we talk a lot, and we should, about the assault on the Capitol on January 6th and election deniers among Republicans. But we have to remember that Stacey Abrams was defeated, another, another election denier. So so I, I think that. Hopefully, politicians recognize now that that it is not right to compromise really our principles to score partisan political points. And not only is it not right, but you'll pay the price for it if you, if you do it. So, you know, I, I feel a lot more confident. And I, you know, but you know what? And I, Kim, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, too. I still see a lot of these panels like at other think tanks about our political crisis. And like, I mean, it, and I'm like, what political crisis are you talking about? You know, so I, I, I think there's still a good deal of self-flagellation going on. Uh, that goes beyond genuine and appropriate concern for our institutions. The middle held is common sense held. Uh, it's so much for the, at least the electorate is immensely polarized. Yeah. Kim, you got Sorry, the last Kim. word. You got the Go last word. Well, thank you. And by the way, before beforehand, let me just tell you what a delight it was to be with such smart people on this show. Um, who needs Neil Ferguson? Who needs Neil Ferguson? <laughs> who? Who? Yeah, who? What was not on the ballot last week, as much as the White House wanted to say, democracy was not on the ballot. OK, we went and we participated in an electoral process. Uh, we're still waiting for some 
dysfunctional states like California to figure out how to finish tallying their votes. And I'm sorry, all three of you live there. Uh, I really am. But anyway, I mean, we. Hey, we, hey Kim, you got to go. I mean, you're freezing in, in, in Alaska. You tell us you feel sorry for us in California. We have heat. It's good. Yeah, yeah, but what you, what you say is we, what, we've become the proverbial. We used to be the destination for America. We now become the proverbial nice place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. But Kim, go ahead and complete your thought. Yeah, so that was, wasn't on the ballot. A couple of things. Look, I, I do think that there uh, was a lot of concern by independent and moderate voters about some of the candidates who ran, who made them feel uncomfortable. Um, that I think was something that did play. And I think there was a lot of discussion in a country that was very rattled, still in an upheaval over the Dobbs decision that was issued in June. Um, and that we're still going to have to sort through in a federalist perspective, which by the way, I'm happy to hear, but here's why I feel good is that, uh, if it's true that Republicans take back the house, uh, the country will be safe for the next two years from some of the worst progressive ideas that were out there that were still very much a potentiality to go through. Um, so there's that. I think also that um, thanks to uh, the prior administration and the Senate, uh, we now have a Supreme Court that is going to look dimly on uh, an executive branch that attempts to pass any of those programs through executive fiat. Um, if you didn't see the Eighth Circuit, just put its... Uh, uh, stop on the student loan program that the administration put out. So I think we should feel really happy about that. And also, look, I think the conservative moment had a little wake up call Tuesday and is suddenly in a position where it might be able to look a little bit more clearly about all of its options that are out there and what path uh, it might want to go down in the future. Kim, if you relocate, forget California, you might want to go to Florida. There's not only the big announcement maybe happening in a few hours in Palm Beach, we'll find out. There's also what happens in Tallahassee with the governor. And now breaking news, Florida Senator Rick Scott Kim just announced he's going to challenge Mitch McConnell. He did so in a closed-door GOP lunch. So you're going to be very busy in the next few weeks. Is that actually true? It's actually true. He's going to take him on. Well, you know what? We had an editorial this morning that said, quit griping. If you're going to challenge someone, stand up and challenge them and then have the vote and then... The winner take all and the losers get behind them. So great. People read your newspaper. Congratulations. <laughs> Kim, this is great fun. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Kim. Hey, that's thanks, it Kim. This, Thank that's you. it for this episode of Goodfellas. We'll be back after the Thanksgiving break. So hang in there. We'll be back soon. On behalf of my colleagues, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, the missing Neil Ferguson, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, our very special guest today, Kimberly Strassel. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll see you soon. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.